Luke chapter 13. And as we begin, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would understand the truth, the reality of your word. And as we look at your kingdom, we pray that you would give us not the eyes of man, but the eyes of God, that we might see what you see, that we might understand what you are doing, and that we would bow before you as our sovereign, as our all-wise God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. While these are two very brief parables, the parables themselves take up just a single verse each. And I doubt many of you remember, but a year ago this month, I was here preaching in Luke 7. Luke 7. Hard to believe we've made it through six chapters in a year. That's a lot. It really is. In Luke, with such long chapters, it is a lot. But I don't know if you remember or not, but in Luke chapter 7, we looked at John the Baptist from prison and he sent messengers to Jesus. And the messengers said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And this is John the Baptist, the one Jesus goes on to say is the greatest prophet who has ever lived. And John asked Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And you probably don't remember, good for you if you do, but a year ago we said, the reason John asked that question is because what was going on in the life of Jesus was so different than John's expectations of what the Messiah would look like. And in this passage, we're going to see something similar related to the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom like? And to what shall I compare it? This kingdom is the focus and the subject of both parables. And before we understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying and what he means by what he's saying, we need to remind ourselves of what their expectations were regarding the kingdom. This would have been 
the Sunday school material for the Jews. I guess it would be Saturday school material. This would be what every little Jew knew. When we teach our Sunday school classes, there are certain stories every one of them knows. Everyone knows these stories. Everyone knows the walls of Jericho and the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. We all know those. For the Jews, there would be more than that. Well, not including, obviously, what didn't happen. But there would be more regarding the Old Testament. There would be expectations that everyone had, and it's those expectations that we have to understand if we're going to understand the point of Jesus' parables. So I want to look at those biblical expectations those Old Testament expectations, and I want us to see legitimately what God had promised and what the Jews expected, because it's those expectations that set up this paragraph. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. What would the kingdom of God be like What would the kingdom of God be like? What would be its characteristics? Who would be in it? Who would rule it? How long would it last? These are all questions you might ask about the kingdom, and the Old Testament makes it very clear. 2 Samuel chapter 7, a very familiar chapter. This is the chapter in which God tells David, you will not build me a temple. David had asked, can I build you a temple? And the Lord said, no, you won't. But then God turned around and said, I'm going to build you a house. You thought you'd build me a house. I'm going to build you one. And so in verse 8, here is what we read. And pay attention to what it says about the kingdom. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place For my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord to David. I am going to build you a house. You will not build me a temple. You will not build me a house. But your offspring will. Now, in the immediate context of 2 Samuel and uh, 1 Chronicles, what do we find? Who builds the temple? Solomon builds the temple, David's offspring. And yet, did Solomon establish an eternal, everlasting kingdom? Clearly not, because he died, and his son split the kingdom, and he died, and his son died, and his son died. And eventually, what do we find, even at the end of Chronicles, that the kingdom is done, in a sense, because there is no king. Well, then what do we make of 2 Samuel 7? Clearly we understand that this prophecy is not just speaking of Solomon. Though it speaks of Solomon, it must speak of someone else. It has to speak of someone beyond him. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the Jews expected a kingdom that was coming with the Messiah, David's offspring, a kingdom that was coming that would last forever. God promised a physical and everlasting kingdom ruled by David's offspring a physical and everlasting kingdom ruled by David's offspring. And so the first expectation that the Jews had regarding the kingdom is that it would be a tangible, physical kingdom. Nobody in the Old Testament would have thought, oh, it's just some spiritual kingdom. And with good reason, as we'll see in a minute. So the kingdom that the Jews are expecting is a physical and everlasting kingdom. Now turn over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37. The kingdom they were expecting would be physical eternal, ruled by David's offspring. But there's more than just that. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land and the mountains on the mountains of Israel. 
And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your, foref- where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The second expectation that the Jews has was not just that the kingdom was physical, but that the kingdom would be holy. A holy and everlasting kingdom with a single shepherd One shepherd to rule them. One king to reign over them. A physical and everlasting kingdom, but a holy kingdom. It would not be merely physical, but it would be holy. Righteous, not corrupt. They were expecting that. And a third expectation is found in Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. Turn back there. Isaiah chapter 60. Not only was the kingdom physical and holy and everlasting, but it's much larger than Israel. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around you and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. 
A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Now listen carefully to the next part. That's how glorious Israel is going to be. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gate shall be open continually, day and night, they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons who afflicted of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. What a picture of the kingdom! The expectations are so vast. All of their enemies will be wiped out. Not only that, but those, all their enemies that survive are going to become their servants. No one will be left who opposes Israel. Anyone who doesn't serve them will be completely laid waste. Those who used to afflict them now come bending on their, down at their feet, bowing down before them. Not only is the kingdom that they're expecting physical and holy, but it is a global kingdom. A global kingdom that lasts forever. And Israel, Israel is its capital. Zion the holy mountain of Jerusalem is its capital. So what the Jews are expecting is <laughs> incredible. A worldwide kingdom ruled by David's offspring, the Messiah, which will be physical, tangible, and also completely holy. That's not much to expect. <laughs> It's quite a bit to expect. But where were they? Christ had been here now for some time. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. 
This is the end of his ministry. And where do we find ourselves in the establishment of this vast kingdom? Well, we have a few setbacks, don't we? At least from a human perspective. But God knew all along what he was up to. Let's look at these setbacks in Luke. That brings us to Luke. And we'll look first at chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And let's look at these setbacks. What they expected was not happening. What they thought was going to happen wasn't occurring. Luke chapter 11 And look just at verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. You can look at the other references. I don't think it will take much to convince you that the rulers, the leaders of Israel, those who were powerful in Israel, hate Jesus. They hate him. This is supposed to be a kingdom that has its capital in Israel, and what do the leaders of Israel think of him? They're king. They hate him. They're at war with him. They want to kill him. So far from being this great capital of God's kingdom on earth, they're out to get him. More significant than that, look back at chapter 9, verse 22. And Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Those who had power in Israel hated Jesus but Jesus Himself predicts His own death. He's the one who's supposed to set up an everlasting kingdom. And He's telling His disciples, I'm going to die. And then there's the ever-present and obvious problem that Israel remains subject to Rome Israel is subject to Rome. And here the disciples are learning about the kingdom of of God. And what do they think in their mind about this kingdom? This is a kingdom that's going to conquer and destroy. All their enemies are going to be wiped out. And yet, they're paying taxes to Rome. And they're ruled by Rome. And there's a centurion here who's in charge. And everywhere they look, Rome is in control. So, from a bird's eye view, from a broad perspective, there's a major disconnect between the promises of God and what they are experiencing. 
They believed rightly God was promising certain things, and yet what was happening was completely different than anything they expected. Now, look at verse 13. I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 18. He said, therefore. Now you all know, whenever you see a therefore, you have to answer what it is there for. Easy to remember, critical. Why does he say it, therefore? It would be a completely different understanding if he just said But he doesn't just say it, he says it, therefore, which points us back to what he has said before. Now he says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? So what do we expect to find in the previous paragraph? Something about the kingdom of God. But we look and it's not there. And we look at the paragraph before that and it's not there and before that and it's not there so the biggest question in this these two parables is how does this connect to what he has said before because it's what happens before that leads him to say these parables well the last time that the kingdom of God is mentioned is back in chapter 12 verse 31. Look, look back there. You'll recognize these words. They should be familiar. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the last time the kingdom was mentioned. In the middle of all that teaching, we, we looked at the, how we deal with our money, how we deal with possessions and not worrying and be anxious. Why? Because God wants to give us the kingdom. At the heart of everything Jesus has been teaching his disciples is the pursuit, the seeking after God's kingdom. What can enable a man to sell his goods and give to the poor? Why don't we worry about what we will eat or drink? Because we are seeking God's kingdom and we know He will take care of us. Or look in chapter 12, verse 35 at that next paragraph. Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Why? Why do I have to be ready? Because the master of the kingdom is coming back. And what's he going to do when he comes back if he finds you being wicked? We have to be ready. We have to stay dressed. Because the Son of Man is coming in his kingdom at an hour we don't expect. Or verse 41 through 48, we see... Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household? When the master returns, who will he set up over his household? 
those who are faithful. So we must be faithful because when he comes in his kingdom, he's going to set us over his household if we are faithful. And then verse 56, Jesus says, the crowd is without excuse. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Pastor Jeremy explained to us the present time is the messianic age, the coming of the king. The king is here and you don't know it. So all that instruction, all the warnings of chapter 12 are given in the context of the kingdom. We seek the kingdom of God because we know our master could return at any time. And those who are faithful, who are not faithful, the king will destroy. So how do we enter the kingdom? Well, that's what chapter 13, 1 through 5 covers. Do we get into the kingdom by being better than those around us? No, Jesus says, unless you too repent, you also will perish. And so he tells us the kingdom is entered through repentance And then Jesus explains what that repentance looks like in the parable of the fig tree. And that if we are not being fruitful, if we are not bearing the fruit that God has made us for, then we will be cut down. The nation of a whole is also pictured where is the fruit? And that brings us to last week's message about the woman who is crippled and healed. Immediately after the parable of the fruitless fig tree, what does Jesus do? He heals this woman. And it is not coincidence that Luke puts them together because it illustrates the fruitlessness of this man and the leaders of Israel. Now, do you remember the first time Jesus taught in a synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth? Remember that? Remember a scroll's handed to him and he's going to teach? This is like, you know, the the high schooler who gets his chance to preach a sermon or something. And it's like, whoa, what's he going to say? Well, they hand Jesus the scroll. He's more like 30, but don't worry. Hands him the scroll and Jesus opens up to, anyone remember? Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now he read that in the synagogue in Nazareth and Luke doesn't mention what he actually teaches in the synagogue in chapter 13 but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to assume the content was similar. And just consider what happens. He comes in and he heals this woman. He heals this woman. He sets her free, one who is bound. He comforts one who mourns. And what, is his, what do his adversaries say? You can't do that on Saturday. He fulfills everything that Isaiah 61 said. And they hate him for it because he did it according to their thought on the wrong day. 
So this account isn't just telling us about the woman. It's not just a neat story about a woman, but it's telling us about the synagogue ruler. The synagogue ruler is asleep when his master returned in the second hour. The synagogue leader is the servant that his master, who knew his master's will and is going to be beaten for not doing it. The synagogue master, a ruler, his kingdom, his synagogue is divided. This synagogue leader failed to interpret the present time. He did not settle with his accuser and will be put in prison. He did not repent. He did not bear fruit and he will be cut down. And look at the result of that encounter in verse 17. And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. This is the demonstration of God's kingdom coming. This woman is a captive set free. And yet it looks nothing like what the disciples expected. So all of that is to explain one word. Therefore. Therefore. Verse 18, he said, therefore. What does it have to do with what just came before? It's what he's been teaching since chapter 12. This is what leads up to the encounter. Jesus is bringing the kingdom, and yet what do all of the Jews, especially the disciples, think? This is not the kingdom I was expecting. So what's your question? What then is the kingdom of God like? What is it like? And that's exactly what Jesus asks. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? So let's look at these specific metaphors. First, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, what do we know about the mustard seed? Well, we know it's small. You, you look at Luke 17. Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it will be moved. The mustard seed was proverbially small. Just a small little thing. And in contrast to its beginning, it grows into a tree. Now, mustards, mustard seeds do not normally grow into trees. Normally, they're something like a small bush. But they can grow into trees. It happens. But when you plant a bush seed, do you expect to see a tree? No, you don't. But it gets so large that the birds of heaven nest in its branches. That's the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed that grows into a tree unexpectedly and nests the birds. What's the message of the mustard seed? Well, obviously, the kingdom's going to grow. It's going to expand and grow like the tree does, like the seed grows into a tree. 
But more than that, the kingdom's fulfillment, its end, its culmination, is unexpected. So that there is some level of shock to find the tree. You wouldn't expect it. Now, what's funny is everyone thinks, oh, the point is mustard seeds grow into great big trees. So if you go and type into Google, like, mustard tree, you'll actually get fake pictures of mustard trees because people already think that's what the point is. It's got to be a really massive tree. No, it's not. It's like 10, maybe 12 feet at the most. Uh, Maybe they can do more with Miracle Grow. I don't know. But the point is, it's not a large tree, and yet it becomes one. What's the point? The kingdom of God is not like what you expect. The kingdom of God may appear to be small. You may not think it's the right idea. You may not think that what God is doing is what you do. It doesn't matter. It will grow into that tree. It will nest birds of the heavens. So the kingdom will grow, and its fulfillment is unexpected. Then the second metaphor. The second metaphor. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, leaven, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but leaven takes things over. It spreads, it converts, it changes Keep that in mind in the parable. The unleavened bread becomes leavened when leaven is put into it. It transforms it. Also, uh, three measures is kind of interesting. I, when I read that the first time, I thought three measures, oh, it's a, just a, maybe like three cups or something. Uh, it translates somewhere into about 45 pounds of flour. These are rough estimates because, you know, nobody had the metric system back then. But somewhere around 45 pounds of flour, a a measure would be roughly what you could keep in your kitchen. Like, conceivably, you could store about 15 pounds of flour. Much more than that, you're not going to have a bin big enough for it. This woman takes three measures of flour. Three measures is a large amount of flour. This bread would feed everyone in this room. It would be enough bread for everyone in this room. Okay? So it's a good amount of flour. But what's the point? How did it get leavened? How do you take enough food for everyone here and leaven it? What did she do? She just took leaven. And it doesn't tell us how much leaven. It just says leaven. And what's the end result? The lump, all of it is leavened. All of it. All of it is leavened. What does she do? She takes it and hides it. Literally, hide it. But if you hide leaven in bread, what are you doing? Incorporating it or kneading it, kneading it into. That's the idea. Just picturesque language. So what do we learn from that? What's the, what's the message of the metaphor The same thing as the mustard seed, the kingdom will grow. The yeast, the leaven grows. It grows. Not in the same way, but it grows. Second, though, the kingdom's growth is not measurable. It's not measurable. There there is 
almost no way to tell what's happening. You don't know how far along it is. It just happens. Jesus skips over any intermediate step. She hit it in three measures of flour, and then he looks at the end until it was all leavened. And then third, the kingdom's fulfillment is transformation. So the, mes- the message of the mustard seed is the unexpected growth. The message of the leaven is that we can't tell, we can't watch it. And also that that transformation, that growth is transformation. And that, those parables, very easy to understand. That's it. There's not much more to it. Why is it there? It's there because the Jews, the disciples specifically, had expectations that didn't match it. You read the Old Testament, what's going to happen? Israel's Israel's enemies are going to be wiped out. All of them will come to serve Israel. And yet, what do we see? Something different. And so Jesus tells us, I am doing things differently right now. Don't be surprised that the kingdom is not conquering Rome right now. It's growing like a mustard seed. It's growing like leaven in a lump of dough. It is accomplishing its work. It is happening. Do not be deceived by your own expectations. Also, and and lastly, the kingdom... Growth is unseen. The invisibility of it. You don't know who is actually coming to Christ. You don't know who's actually part of God's kingdom. On the outside, we have guesses. We can tell somewhat, kind of. But in the end, what's happening? Is it conquering in a visible way where we can look at our numbers and say, we know we're a good and healthy church because we have more people this year than we did last year. Is that the point? Not at all. Because the kingdom of God can't be measured in that way. The kingdom of God is coming. Christ will return when we don't expect it. He will sit on David's throne forever. He will wipe out his enemies. Israel will be the capital But right now, the kingdom is growing in a different way. It's growing through the gospel preached by you and by me to those around us. And it's growing like leaven. And it will transform the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are at work. That you have planted a mustard seed. That you have hidden leaven and a lump of dough, and that your work is being accomplished. Sometimes we think that nothing's happening, that no growth is visible, and yet, Lord, we know that you are at work. We pray, Lord, that our expectations of what you do will not lead us to dictate to you how you ought to do something. We stand in awe of the work you are doing in the kingdom in ways that we could never have guessed or ever have imagined. In Christ's name we pray, amen.